An Exposition of the Beatitudes Jeremiah Burroughs, 1659 And when he saw the crowds, he went up on a mountain, and after he sat down, his disciples came to him. And he opened his mouth and taught them, saying, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Matthew 5, verse 1 This chapter, along with chapter 6 and 7, contains a sermon that Jesus Christ preached. On the Mount. It is the most extensive and comprehensive sermon recorded in Scripture, the Sermon of Christ Himself. As a minister of Christ, I pondered what could be more suitable for me to preach about than the Sermon of Christ. Therefore, if God permits, and as long as I have life, strength, and liberty, I intend to go through this entire Sermon of Christ for your benefit. It'd be negligence for a minister to preach someone else's sermons, but to preach Christ's sermon is faithfulness. In 2 Corinthians 5 verse 20, the ministers of God are described as ambassadors of Christ, speaking to the people as if Jesus Christ himself were speaking in his place, dare to regard themselves as coming to the people in Christ's stead. If we much preach as if Christ were preaching, What could be more fitting than to preach what Christ himself has preached? This sermon, spanning three whole chapters, was preached by the Son of God himself, the one who possesses the wisdom of the Father, holds all the treasures of wisdom, and has been in the Father's bosom for all eternity. He knows the Father's mind, his heart, and the counsels of his will regarding humanity's eternal state. He was sent by the Father into the world to fulfill this purpose, to proclaim his mind and will to the children of men. Oh, what attentiveness is required as you hear the sermon of Christ being repeated, explained, and applied to you. We have infinite reasons to thank God for the way in which we can know his mind through Jesus Christ, his Son. In former times, the Lord revealed his mind to men through various means, but now... As the Apostle says in Hebrews 1, he has spoken to us by his Son, whom he appointed as the heir of all things, and through whom he made the world. Jesus Christ is the brightness of God's glory, and the exact representation of his being. Oh, the blessedness of those who live in the times of the gospel, where God speaks to us through his Son. Christ has come from the Father to make him known to us. No one knows the Father except the Son, and those to whom the Son chooses to reveal Him. Surely there are great things to be known about the mind of God. When the second person of the Trinity is designated by the Father to come and preach His mind to humanity, if we hear news of a friend who has come from a distant land to share important information with us, and we know that this friend is wise, faithful, and speaks only the truth, we eagerly gather around to listen. Sometimes, even if someone returned from the army after a significant battle, and we know that we have a good understanding of events and are trustworthy, how eagerly do we seek to be with them and hear the news. But here, my brethren, we have Jesus Christ coming from God the Father, fully knowing the mind of his Father, and sent by him into the world to make known all the counsels of God that were hidden from the beginning of the world. This news concerns our eternal condition, for that is the essence of the gospel, good news brought by Christ. Therefore I implore you to listen, for God says, This is my beloved Son, in whom I am well pleased. Hear him.
Now as I begin and intend, God willing, to continue preaching what Christ says, it is crucial that as long as I stick to his words, you hear him in them. It will greatly aggravate your sin if you do not pay attention to what will be preached now, for it is the sermon of Jesus Christ that will be expounded. It is the fullest sermon of his that we have recorded. Hebrews 12, you can see the weight the Holy Spirit places on this. That God has revealed himself to us through his Son, he says, See, that you do not refuse him who speaks. For if they did not escape who refused him who spoke on earth, much more shall we not escape if we turn away from him who speaks from heaven. Here in this chapter, Christ speaks from heaven. Although he was physically on earth at the time, we are to consider him as speaking from heaven. The subject of our attention, fear, and reverence is the Sermon of Christ. May we carry the thought with us as we hear him preaching from these chapters. All I will do at this time is preface this sermon. There are six aspects to consider in this sermon first, since we find this sermon recorded not only in Matthew but also in Luke. We must inquire whether they are the same or not, if they are the same. One will shed light on the others. The substance of the sermon is nearly identical. Secondly, we must determine when Christ preached this sermon and the occasion for it. Thirdly, we should identify the location where he preached it. Fourthly, we need to know the audience to whom he preached. Fifthly, we must understand the manner in which he preached. Sixthly, we should grasp the sermon scope, what it primarily aimed to achieve. These six points will pave the way for what follows. Regarding the first point, whether it is the same sermon that Luke records, I notice that interpreters often struggle with it. However, if you read the sermon itself, you will find that although it is not recorded as extensively as Matthew does, the substance is the same, and the wording is nearly identical. In Luke 6 verse 20 it is written, He lifted up his eyes on his disciples and said, Blessed are the poor, and so on, just as it is here. The reason for doubt is that in Matthew, it is mentioned that Jesus chose his disciples in chapter 10 and sent them out. But in Luke, it is stated that he chose his disciples before this sermon was preached in chapter 6 verse 13. You will find it to 12 were sent out first, and then the sermon was preached. That is the difference. Secondly, Matthew states that Jesus Christ went up to the mountain and taught his disciples, verse 1. But Luke says that he came down with them and stood on a level place, and he lifted up his eyes on his disciples and said, and so on. Matthew says he sat, and Luke says he stood on a level place. Therefore, some interpreters claim it was a different sermon. However, these differences can be easily addressed. Regarding the first point, although Luke represents it as occurring after the sending out of the twelve, and Matthew seems to indicate it happened earlier, we can reconcile this. Even though Matthew records it in chapter 10, it does not mean that the events described in chapter 10 necessarily happened before those in chapter 5. The scriptures often do not chronologically order events, but arrange them thematically. In this case, Matthew had a reason to mention Christ's teachings before addressing the sending out of the disciples in chapter 10. Thus, it being in chapter 10 does not negate the possibility of it occurring earlier in chapter 5. For the second point concerning Matthew stating that Jesus was on the mountain, 
and Luke mentioning him coming down to the plain. The answer is that it is not stated here in Matthew that he came down to the plain to preach. Instead, it is mentioned that after sending out his disciples, Jesus came down to the plain, and the people came to him. After spending the entire night on the mountain, as we shall see shortly, Jesus sent out his disciples and then encountered a great multitude of people. He performed healing miracles among them, and then returned to the mountain, withdrawing from the crowd the priest to his disciples and those who he gathered with them. So while it is said that he was on the plain and stood there, indicating that he stood while the multitude was with him, he later, according to Matthew, withdrew to the mountain again and preached. Thus, there is no substantial objection that would negate it being the same sermon. These two apparent differences can easily be reconciled. Therefore, since the substance of the sermon is the same, we will assume it is one and the same. The different gospel writers will mutually enhance our understanding. Now let us inquire about the second point, the time when Christ preached this sermon. To shed light on this, we must turn to Luke. Although it is not mentioned in Matthew, it will provide valuable insight. The night before this sermon, Jesus spent the entire night in prayer. In Luke 6 verse 12, it is written, And it came to pass on those days that he went out to the mountain to pray and continued all night in prayer to God. It was the night before the sermon was preached. The scripture justifies lengthy prayers on extraordinary occasions. Although in ordinary circumstances, it is more appropriate to keep family prayer short. On exceptional occasions, extended prayers are warranted. Jesus Christ himself prayed all night, setting an example for his ministers to pray for people while others sleep or engage in other activities. Christ devoted an entire night to prayer. Now you may wonder about the occasion that prompted him to spend a whole night in prayer before preaching this sermon. The reason appears to be the task he had accomplished the following morning. Choosing and sending out his disciples is stated in verse 13. When it was day, he called his disciples to himself and from them he chose twelve whom he also named apostles. He had the significant responsibility of selecting twelve apostles who would travel and preach the gospel, one of the greatest tasks since the beginning of the world. Christ considered this a weighty and important undertaking. Therefore, in preparation for this momentous work, he spent the entire night in prayer seeking God's guidance and equipping himself for the task ahead. You can see from this that the work of the ministry is a great undertaking. Some may consider it insignificant, but Christ regarded it as significant. He made solemn preparations before choosing his apostles and spent the entire night in prayer. Therefore, those in the ministry should view it as a mighty and solemn task. They should recognize the weight of the work they are called to do. Similarly, when people are selecting or calling a minister, they should approach it with reverence and not trivialize it. Instead of hastily deciding, they should dedicate ample time to prayer and seeking God's guidance. While the appointment of civil officers or those who assist the civil authorities may not require the same level of solemnity, when it comes to choosing individuals, will exercise the power of Christ in administering ordinances. It should be done with great solemnity. 
This was a practice from the beginning. Even the appointment of a deacon in Acts 6 involved prayer and the laying on of hands and for elders, who have a greater role in exercising the power of Christ. Prayer, fasting, and the laying on of hands were observed. Acts 14. It is a solemn and significant task, and all ministers of God should consider Christ's prayer as part of their preparation for ministry. They should reflect on it and have faith in the blessing that comes with it. Furthermore, when Christ said in John 17, verse 20, did he pray not only for those present, but also for all who could believe in the future, it is certain that his whole night of prayer was not solely for the twelve apostles, but for all who would enter the ministry and preach the gospel of Christ at the end of the world. Now having spent the entire night in prayer, the first thing he does in the morning is to choose his twelve apostles. Afterward, when he sees a multitude approaching him, he withdraws a little and begins to preach. He delivers an excellent and remarkable sermon, which we are about to discuss. Despite having stayed up all night and expended himself in prayer, which is physically demanding, Christ does not prioritize his physical well-being. Those who were overly concerned about him would have urged him to rest instead of wearing himself out. However, the next morning he seizes the opportunity to preach, teaching us that ministers of the gospel should not be overly concerned about their physical well-being, constantly whining and complaining about their weak bodies, or being overly cautious about exerting themselves. If there is an opportunity for service, they should be ready to seize it, even if it means tiredness and exertion. What if it shortens their lifespan a little? Isn't it better to accomplish a great deal of good in a short time? than to achieve little good over a long period. Accomplishing much in a short time brings greater comfort. A person's life should be measured by their service, not by the number of years they live. Christ preached this lengthy sermon, the longest we know of, and it was delivered the morning after he had spent the entire night in prayer. Furthermore, let us observe the remarkable sermon that Jesus Christ preached after such a dedicated prayer. It was a truly heavenly sermon. Also, consider the prayer he had shortly before his death prayed from John 14 onwards for two or three chapters. Those passages contain some of the most profound aspects of Christ's teachings recorded in Scripture. Therefore, ministers should pray more, and they will preach better. The key to being a good preacher is fervent prayer. Ministers should come to the pulpit with the fragrance of prayer still lingering, for those are the sermons that are warmed in their own hearts. They come to offer the milk of the word, and just as nurses warm the milk before feeding it to a child, the milk of the word that is warmed by a minister's heartfelt prayer is most nourishing to the people. Moreover, we can also note that the way to be filled with the Holy Spirit, to be filled with heavenly truths and a deeply spiritual disposition, is to be devoted to prayer. Spending time in purposeful prayer will help not only ministers, but also Christians to be filled with the Holy Spirit and divine truths. Consider that the sermon was preached the morning after Christ has spent the entire night in prayer. This adds to the excellence of the sermon and serves as a special motive for your attention and reception of the sermon's message. 
Surely a sermon delivered immediately after such a prayer must contain remarkable substance. This leads us to the second aspect to consider as a preface, the timing of this sermon. The third preface to the sermon is the place where it was delivered, for everything in Scripture has its significance. According to my text, Jesus went up to the mountain. He had already been on a mountain in prayer, then descended to interact with the people, and later returned to the mountain to preach. Why on the mountain? Some believe it was to fulfill the prophecies and various scriptures about preaching the gospel on the mountain, such as Isaiah 40 verse 9 and Joel 3 verse 18. However, these are mere conjectures. Others allegorize the idea, emphasizing how ministers should have a heavenly disposition when preaching. But I don't fancy straining scripture beyond what I believe to be the Holy Spirit's intended meaning. Therefore, the only consideration is the convenience of the mountain as a secluded place, with a crowd around him. Christ couldn't speak as freely for edification, so he retreated to the mountain where he had spent so much time in prayer. Christ didn't wait to preach in a synagogue or the temple. No, he preached wherever it was suitable to address the people. It's not necessary for there to be a consecrated place for the preaching of the word. Which mountain was it, you may ask? Some have thought it was the Mount of Olives, but that's impossible because Christ was in Upper Galilee at the time, about 40 miles away from Jerusalem. Mount Olivet is as close to Jerusalem as Islington is to the city. Hence Jerome and others believe it was Mount Tabor. Certainly this justifies that preaching can take place in any location where ministers have the opportunity and where there can be peace and edification. People have two mistaken notions. Some think certain places are so profaned by unholy activities that preaching should not take place there, while others believe certain places have been excessively associated with superstition, and due to the superstition surrounding them, preaching should not occur there. They refuse to attend a sermon because of the place's superstition. Certainly, this understanding helps us to counter both notions. Regarding the profane, there is nothing done in any place that defiles it so much that preaching would be unacceptable to God, even if it were a former playhouse. If there is no more suitable location available, the work of preaching would not be defiled. Shall so many souls perish because they lack a consecrated place to learn about God and Christ? It's a sorrowful thought. This mountain, if it is indeed Mount Tabor, as both Jerome and others believe, was as unsuitable a place as a playhouse. Christ preached this sermon there, a place likely to be tainted by superstition and idolatry. I find mention of this place in the prophecy of Hosea in chapter 5, verse 1. Hear this, you priests. Pay attention, Israel's house. Listen, royal house. The judgment applies to you because you have been a snare at Mizpah and a net spread out on Mount Tabor. The meaning of this is that when the ten tribes deviated from the true worship of God in the temple at Jerusalem and established their idols in Dan and Bethel, there were some who were more godly and devout than others. They couldn't be content with worshiping there and felt a need to go to Jerusalem. 
However, the laws of the king and the priests were against it, and no one could worship in Jerusalem without risking punishment. Nonetheless, many still went, so the priests and others set up watchers to observe those who went up to Jerusalem to worship, just as there had been men assigned to watch when people leave their parish churches, even if there was no preaching at home. Since those going to Jerusalem had to pass through Mount Tabor, watchers were stationed there, hence a mention of a net spread on Tabor. Surely this place was profane to the utmost degree, and yet, in spite of that, Christ went and preached his sermon. It was his wicked an act to set watchmen to spy on those to the true worship of God in Jerusalem, as it was to stage a play. Nevertheless, as I said, Christ came and preached on a mountain. And so regarding any superstition associated with places, the synagogues of the ten tribes and the locations they established for their worship and teaching were greatly corrupted as they set them up in opposition to the true worship of God in Jerusalem. Yet Christ would preach wherever he went, regardless of how those places had been misused. He didn't concern himself with that, but took the present opportunity to do his work, to preach the word. God has called them to. Let us focus on the work we are presently engaged in and not be distracted, thinking that another task may be more beneficial. If this is our current work, then let us dedicate ourselves to it and entrust our efforts to the blessings of God.